this week, we reflect on mom's role in society. Who are we as individuals? How did we get here? Let's take a moment to reflect on the matriarchy of mom. Join Frank Falvey and our roundtable of regulars, higher education consultant, Dr. Michael Walker-Jones, Harvard's executive director for health and human services, Dr. Natalie Alinos, and from Beacon Hill, Representative Jeff Roy, as we the people navigate the unique journey of America toward a more perfect union. Hello, this is Frank Falvey on a journey toward a more perfect union. And this morning, we're going to maybe have a little fun in uh, sharing stories, particularly around our mothers, our families, uh, our remembrances. Uh, maybe we'll even bring in a, a little childhood uh, incidences that remain in our mind. So to begin with, Natalie, what's your reflection growing up or with your family? And is there a particular person you'd like to raise up? Yeah, Frank, thanks so much. And, you know, I'm a mom. I'm a mom of three young kids. And I have an eight-year-old and three-year-old twins. Actually, they're turning four in June. Um, and I'm always, you know, reflecting on my childhood now. Um, being a mom is very unique in the sense of, you know, how did my mom do it? We were five kids. I'm the middle child. Um, she worked full-time. But we also had my grandmother living with us. So I sort of think of this kind of matriarchal kind of parenting that we had. We had a grandmother at home, my mom working, and then five kids. Um, I'm happy to share throughout the show more, but just to say I'm always amazed by the power of moms and working moms, moms who don't work, moms who are uh, with their kids, separated from their kids. So I'm really excited about our conversations because every relationship is unique. Some are positive, some are strained, and I have both you know, to share. But I would say I'm one of five kids, the middle child. My mom is an epidemiologist like, my, like me. So we've actually bonded this year quite a bit. We talk pretty much daily about science. She's in Greece and she's considered kind of the Fauci of Greece. She's really advising the government. She's on the news every day. Um, but we've been, you know, doing a lot of intellectual partnering. But of course, my childhood uh, memories of her are very unique. But I'd love to hear from Michael, actually. My goodness. I tell you, I had three moms. I had my uh, biological mom, who was my mother from the age of birth until I was five years old. I had my great-grandmother, who was my mother from six years old till actually until she passed away. Uh, and then there was my grandmother, uh, who came to live with us when I was 12. And she and my great-grandmother sort of finished off and rounded me out. My favorite, my favorite remembrance, first let me start with my mother, was one in terms of the power of what moms tell you. We were driving to Atlanta, Georgia, south of Atlanta, Georgia, to see my, my maternal great-grandmother. And there was this big fog coming out of this industry as we're driving by. And I asked my, my mom, what was that? And she said, that's where they make daylight. And for years, I believed that daylight was made. 
because that's what my mom told me. Uh, <laughs> and so the power of what moms have over their children is uh, without question, it can be earth shattering and remembering for uh, and a remembrance for your entire life. And then my great grandmother, bless her heart, rest her soul, said to me when I was seven years old, she says, I am going to raise you so that you will not be beholden to any woman ever in your life. And so from there, she immediately started to teach me how to iron, how to wash, how to sew on a sewing machine, an old Singer sewing machine with a metal pedal. I learned how to sew, how to clean, how to cook, as well as doing the other manly things like how to chop wood, how to do the things and stuff out in the yard, etc. So, Michael, uh, can I jump in on that? Because interestingly, my mother did the opposite. She said, we were four girls and a boy. She's like, I'm not going to teach you how to cook or clean because I don't want you to have to do that later in life. You know, I don't want <laughs> you to feel that. So I, I feel kind of handicapped actually right now. Not knowing, I don't know how to sew a button. Um, you know, she basically said, you are going to college. You are going, I mean, I don't think she said you're going to get a PhD, but we're four girls. All of us have yeah. PhDs. We're all in academia. So she basically said, you know, you are not learning how to do these things. And, you know, you better figure it out later in life. You get someone, a husband who knows how to do it. Uh, <laughs> you know. So it's, it's interesting how our okay, mothers... Okay, can your husband sew a button? Is that what you're telling him? He irons pretty well. Wow. He does good cooking. He does the laundry. I mean, he's really on top of things. He knows there how to go. do a lot of things. I mean, I do know how to do things. And I'm actually a decent cook. Um, it was just, I never, you know, his mother, he's, uh, my husband is Lebanese Palestinian and, you know, both Greek cuisine and Palestinian Lebanese cuisine takes hours because that's what women would spend their days with like 10 hours. And I get a little bit of criticism from my mother-in-law for not knowing any of these like traditional <laughs> meals. Well, uh, Natalia, I am a great eater. So I'd be happy to judge your cooking anytime. Uh, you just put it in front of me and I'll be, uh, I'll be a, a wonderful guest. This summer, this summer, I'm really looking forward to meeting you all in person. Can you believe, Jeff, I feel like I've met you maybe for five minutes total. Yeah, yeah, it's, that's true. It was, just, you know, uh, sometime in uh, before the pandemic and it was uh, at the polls, I think. Yeah. Well, I will jump in and, uh, uh, and say I'm not a mom. Um, but uh, or have you some, played one on TV? I play one on TV, <laughs> Pete. You are right on top of it. I was waiting. I lobbed you a softball. <laughs> um, but uh, you know, similar to Michael, I, I would say I had two mothers growing up, and I grew up in an Italian home, so I was not uh, taught those skills of uh, of cooking and ironing and and cleaning. And uh, to this day, I'm terrible at all. But uh, in any event, I mean. So we lived in a, uh, a two-family home where uh, my family lived on the first floor and my grandmother and grandfather lived on the second floor. I spent most of my time uh, growing up with my grandmother. In fact, uh, people often wondered, why do you call your grandmother Ma? You know, it was that, uh, that type of a relationship with, which I had with uh, my grandmother up until the day she died. I was eating at her house up until she, she passed away in 1992. And I had been married for several years. And, and my wife said, how long are you going to continue going to your grandmother's for, for dinner? I said, oh, you're more than welcome to come. I said, she'd love to have you. I, I guess I didn't get the point. 
But, uh, you know, the interesting thing, and I think why that, uh, that arrangement occurred, is uh, my mother was 17 when she had me, and I was her second child. So in some families, a mother of that age would be your sister. Uh, but, uh, you know, she uh, instilled in me uh, the importance of education and uh, the importance of planning to uh, get an education and to improve the life. I mean, they were certainly uh, folks that believed in the American dream and uh, wanted us all to succeed. And as much as it pained me, uh, when I did my paper route, she would uh, take my money and bring it to the bank so that I would have an account uh, that I could tap into when I went to college. And uh, the other thing I will praise her for is uh, putting a cello in my lap as a second grade student and teaching me music and uh, getting me into a, a classical instrument. I haven't touched a cello since I was 18, but uh, I still play music to this day. And I think we did a show about that not long ago. But great memories with uh, two moms and uh, don't know where I would be without either one of them. I'll, I'll jump in there. This is Kobe Frangillo. I'm a town counselor here in Franklin. I'm joining, uh, joining the program today. I have the... Uh, I think I'm the only one here with their mother potentially in, in hearing range of uh, of the speech. So <laughs> keep that in Kobe's mind. Kobe's mom, no, we like him. Just just letting you know, Kobe's mom. He's cool. He's cool. Yeah, he is. He is. He's being a good kid. I, th I think she would uh, be frustrated <laughs> at the cleanliness of my room right now. I'll, I'll go do that after. That's a good reminder. No, she. So I grew up in a, in a pretty. Uh, probably about as traditional as you get in terms of a, of a household. Always, always had two parents at home. I knew my, uh, knew my grandparents. Um, my mother left her, sort of gave up her career to, to stay home and, and take care of us and sort of um, built jobs around uh, supplementing the, the household income uh, that allowed her to, to stay with us as much as she could. Uh, she is one of the most uh, caring and loving and, affectionate mothers uh you, you never have to question you know her, her love uh, for you which is very nice and uh my particular relationship with with my mom is, is we uh share we share a few loves but one is exploring a uh, local region and so we've been doing uh pretty frequently we'll do sort of kobe mom days uh where we'll just jump in the car pick a new town. I have a large map of, of places to hit. She has a large map of places to hit. And we just line a few up and we go out and do a full day of, uh, of exploring uh, the area. Usually uh, others come up to me and, and uh, remind me that she's been broadcasting all of uh, our adventures to, to the world. She's a very uh, loud Facebook mom. <laughs> and so uh, I am people... a witness to those. I've seen them frequently <laughs> and I'm glad you talked about them. Right. Uh, yeah, pe people often, uh, you know, give me life updates uh, before I know them. <laughs> she's she's uh, pretty loud about that. But also, you know, particularly in terms of, uh, you know, shaping who I am and, and what brings me, you know, even to this space is I think a lot of my uh, success in, in the town council run um, and, and just interest in, in being bought into uh, to town and what's going on has been through her leadership um, as a mom in town. She's very outspoken about supporting local businesses. She was always, uh, you know, focused on, on bringing us 
to, to local stores and knowing the latest, you know, going to local uh, nonprofits and, and just helping out the community. She's been uh, the longest running um, employee of Franklin New Soccer Association to coming up on, on 20, 30 years. So just a lot of families know her around town. So that was a huge for me, uh, you know, people knowing uh, me as I went around, but also a great resource where she just has this like, uh, you know, she's just very tuned into what it is to, to be a family and raise kids in Franklin. Do you have siblings, Kobe? I do. I'm uh, the second of four biological, and then we added a, a fifth in the middle. Frank, uh, I don't. I, I was going to say you? Frank and Pete. Don't yeah. be shy. We want to hear your your backstories. Oh no, I shan't be shy. Let me chime in with a woman who was a major force in my life. My grandmother, Constance Surrett, was a teacher. Eight grades in one room in Eelbrook, Nova Scotia. When she passed away. They all came, all of them. There are two things that she did for me. I was struggling to learn how to read when I was five, six, well behind the pack in school. That's when her teacher kicked in. Uh, by the way, I lived with her on three occasions for you know typically six months or so. And in that first handful of months, she moved my reading level from the first grade directly to the eighth grade, according to testing. So I fell in love with books. I lived at the library. I devoured everything in sight. The other thing she did, she taught me humanity. When I was five, we were visiting Franklin Park, looking at the animals, taking in the sights, a sunny day. There were three black kids, one of whom came up to me and started screaming at me, calling me a white patty. Clearly he was angry. And of course I had no idea why. I'm five years old. And here's this kid who's just screaming at me and clearly blaming me for whatever. But And the other two kids who were with him were apologizing for him and pulled him away and said he didn't mean it, don't worry about it, and so on. But that incident was my introduction to racism and the effects that it has. So my grandmother, taking the task in hand, trying to introduce a five-year-old to the concept of racism, said... Do you like friends? Well, yeah, who doesn't? How many do you want? Well, a bunch. Well, if you want a bunch, you need to be one. And it doesn't matter what your friends look like. Fast forward five years, I'm at camp. It's a camp for inner city newsboys. None of us were particularly well moneyed. This is up in Maine. There are two kids sitting on the stoop at our cabin couple of other kids nearby, the two white kids sitting on the stoop started talking about blacks in general, clearly disparaging. And in the, probably in a handful of seconds, 10 seconds, one of them turned to me and said, so what do you think, huh? At that point, I recalled my grandmother's statement. And she said, do you really care the color of the hand that reaches out to save you? That ended the conversation. At the end of camp, I was there for a month, final day, the camp counselor asked everyone to move their dessert in front of the person they thought they deserved it most. We all walked around the table with our little piece of gingerbread, putting it down wherever we thought it should be. When I got back to my seat, 
Every single piece of gingerbread except mine was in front of me. I like gingerbread now. <laughs> Pete, I have to ask, did you eat them all? No, I gave them all back. All right. You are a sport. I knew you That's were. That's why maybe they knew. They knew that he would be the one kid to give them back. I mean, I guess that is what they were saying, the one who deserved it. That's Yeah. That's a powerful story, Pete. That is yeah. absolutely a powerful story. And you know, I uh, you know, actually I'm I'm very impressed here with the similarities of our uh, our upbringing. Um and in many ways it's it's important for us to realize again being the academic and always the consummate academic on this panel study after study would actually show that it's not a coincidence that all of us are sitting here especially as activists as folks who are out there in the world trying to make the place a better place because mothers and your family upbringing have a lot to do with what you end up doing in life. Like you, Jeff, my, uh, my mother, when I was born, uh, she was 16 years old. As a matter of fact, uh, I always calculated, because uh, if anybody ever asked me, well, how old was your mother or how old would your mother be today? I just add 16 to my age and there you go. <laughs> okay. And it's important also to realize that my great-grandmother, when I went to live with her at six years old, was 56 years old, raising a six-year-old. And so for her age, I just add 56 to my, uh, to my six-year-old-ness, and there you go. But like Pete, the things that they say to you when you are growing up in order to help shape your personality shape your thoughts. Uh, my great-grandmother, uh, we lived in a neighborhood that was actually integrated, and but it was integrated on a block basis. In other words, the street that we lived on, the blacks lived on, two blocks over, whites lived on, and so on and so forth. But my great-grandmother, bless her heart, I mean, she knew everybody. <laughs> she, she would walk up and down those streets introducing herself if she didn't know someone or would uh, make sure. And for me, it was watching her do that and watching her be a part of the community. She was also an activist. Uh, she would take me to the uh, church, Mount Zion Baptist Church, which was the church that Martin Luther King came to. Uh, and we were there when he came to help us with our open housing law in Louisville. And I got to see him. Uh, she took me to one of the Kreskis when we were doing a sit-in. And she had me sit. Uh, I think I was eight at the time, nine. And I'm sitting on one of the stools and people were spitting at us. And she would tell me, don't you dare cry. And don't you dare turn around and say anything. Okay. Uh, you know, I'll clean you up when we, when we leave here. But for right now, just sit there, which is pretty powerful for an eight-year-old. The memories of those folks for us, I think, is, again, what shapes us and what makes us. And here it is, being an old man, I still remember those lessons. And one 
piece too that she said that I didn't understand until I turned 50, which is one of the other things too that happens with moms. <laughs> They'll tell you something now. So Kobe, watch out, buddy. Some of this stuff is going to come back at you later. Okay. Uh, and my great grandmother used to say to me, I loathe to suffer fools. And I did not know what that meant until I turned 50. And now it is one of our family sayings. My son always turns around to me and says, dad, dad, did you just see that? And he would say, yeah, now that fits the bill, doesn't it, dad? And we know what we're talking about. You know, I love Hey, you stuff. suffer fools every week by joining us on this show, <laughs> don't you? No, no. But I got to tell you, I watched a bunch of them yesterday uh, <laughs> on, uh, uh, on the news as uh, one of the parties was ousting one of their party members and some of the things that was happening. So <laughs> I won't no. take it any further than that. <laughs> no, Hollywood listening, writers. Uh, listening oh. to these uh, stories and, and, and Pete, particularly listening to yours and, and uh, the similarities that we have. Um, I, I reflected back to uh, the inaugural speech that I gave on the floor of the, the uh, House of Representatives back, I think it was in 2014. And uh, I had talked to the, uh, the body and I said, you know, I uh, bring people through the State House. Frank, you've been through the State House with me, so you're, you're familiar with what I'm going to talk about. Is I, I often look up at the freeze that's along the ceiling in the room uh, of the house chamber that was constructed in 1898. And it includes the names of uh, 53 people who contributed to make the Commonwealth in our country, the great place that it is. And I, uh, but uh, in the speech I was saying, as I look up at that freeze, I, I also see the face of my great grandfather, Giuseppe Morcone, who came to America in 1895 from Castelfranco, Italy. And I see the faces of my grandparents who, who left their countries to seek a new life in America. And uh, as I um, think about their remarkable journeys in pursuit of a dream that they passed on to another generation, it was amazing to me. And um, I had brought my uncle in, and you know he's the son of the grandmother I talked about earlier. And uh, we were walking through the building and. And he goes, can you imagine uh, what your grandmother would say if uh, she saw you working in this building? And I, I just, uh, you know, it, it, it floored me. And, and you think about it's uh, an awesome, uh, awesome opportunity that I would not have had without their guidance uh, throughout. And I hear that in your voices as you tell your story. So I thought I would share that. I often wonder how yesterday's proceedings in Congress might have looked if all of their moms and grandmoms were seated in the gallery. You know, my, my paternal grandmother always used to say, that's all right, are you kids, are you play nice in a fight? And uh, I could see them all singing that out in chorus from the gallery right now. Hollywood writers can't come up with what happened yesterday. If they did come up with it? the script wouldn't sell because it would not be believable. That's, that's the whole thing right there. The willing suspension of belief just vaporizes. And yet at the same time, you know that it's all really happening. Say what? <laughs> you know, Natalia, I, I am uh, especially concerned that the images that are coming out of Washington now 
especially yesterday, seems to continue to go against one of the principles that we keep, I know, near and dear to our heart, and that is the the exaltation of our mothers and grandmothers. And yet it seems like there's an attack constantly by, and I don't say this with any kind of disrespect, but by men who don't have any kind of, uh, and I think your point is well well made, Pete, it seems as though they don't have any kind of tie to some of the things that their mothers may have told them. And I don't know if that's just personal ambition at this point, but for example, your mom telling you, no, I'm not going to teach you any of those girly, girly things. You're going to be a scientist. You're going to be an educated person, which is, again, one of the bulwarks of this particular country in terms of, especially for our women folk, is to make sure that they have equal opportunity and equal footing uh, with men. But that's not what's happening. And so our moms would be very disappointed. I know my great grandmother would be very disappointed in many of our politicians today. Yeah, no. And I've spoken about this before. I do think COVID has taken us back in terms of gender norms and, you know, women leaving the workplace and, you know, having to take on more traditional roles um, like caregiving of children and the elderly and the sick and you know what that means for long-term uh, equality, I think, is is concerning. But I do want to also echo that grandmothers have featured really strongly in this episode. And I mentioned my grandmother, and I do think that where I am today is because of my grandmother. My grandmother only went to third grade education. She grew up, you know, I, I grew up in Greece. I, and I've said this in other episodes. So my grandmother was the typical, you know, if you've seen postcards of Greece of old women wearing all black, she lost her husband when I was two years old, which is why she moved in with us, you know, never took off her black clothes. That's how you sort of express mourning. Um, but she was very traditional. So she did all the cooking in the house. She did all the, you know, making sure we would come home and we would eat allowing my mom to be a full-time, you know, she was a professor at the medical school, even though her mom had only gone to third grade. You know, the fact that my mom was able to make that leap from a household, her dad was the baker of the village, her mom didn't go to school, but was able to go to medical school in Athens to come to Harvard to do her master's degree and her PhD to be a professor and then go back to Greece as a, you know, professor at Athens Medical School was, was amazing. And I can't attribute that to anyone other than my grandmother who, even though she had no education, she would sit with us, you know, because my mom would be coming home from work late, making us do our homework. And she'd be like, oh, I think you got that wrong. Read it again. And she didn't know how to read and write. And yet she would say, no, no. She would like listen for us hesitating or something. And we didn't know that she didn't know how to read and write because she would be like, no, no, that was wrong. Do it again. You know, so it was a very kind of um, concerted effort. And I am amazed by women who, like my grandmother herself accepted those norms. You know, she wore black, she did the cooking, she never left the house other than to go to church um, and yet pushed her granddaughters to do these kind of crazy things. I mean, my, and Kobe, I love that you go exploring with your mom. My childhood memories are my mom used to go to conferences, you know, to medical conferences and they'd be in Europe. We'd go to Italy or to Spain and on every trip she would take one of the kids, we would rotate. Um, so at 12, I would be in Italy with my mom and my mom would be in conferences all day and she'd say, go explore and give, give us such independence, um, which was amazing. And I don't, 
I don't know. I don't know how my grandmother allowed it in, you know, in that sense, how my father um, sort of thought that this was the norm. But we, I don't know. I wonder if she realizes that we would have all left Greece now. All, all of the, my four sisters were all in the U.S. Um, I don't know how she would feel about that. Um, but they definitely, yeah, made strong, strong women. But the grandmother is kind of the force in, in our family story too. It's amazing to me that, you know, I think of I think of my grandmother. Talk about the norms, following the norms. She never worked outside the home, never had a driver's license. She did get out and about. I mean, uh, going to church was probably the most important thing to her. My grandfather used to drop her off at church and then pick her up. Um, and when he passed away, she had a neighbor who would do that. Uh, and uh, there were times that uh, we would all do that. But you know, uh, with her following those norms, I mean, the importance of getting an education was, you know, uh, emphasized constantly. Um, I, I guess it was a vision they had that, hey, I didn't have this for me. I certainly want to see this for my offspring. And uh, just, it's just amazing how that, how that plays out. Um, I, I think it worked out okay. I'm happy. And I think she'd be happy, but you know, it's, it's wild. It's just a, a wild thing. And, and I think particularly with you, Natalia, you're a first generation American. And uh, I wonder what your vision is for your children and their children. Yeah. I mean, obviously I, I care about education deeply. I care about raising good kids, the, the humanity that Pete talked about, you know, I'm more concerned about their social kind of ability, but it is, I don't see America as the opportunity, you know, like that dream of the American dream that you will do better. You know, I do think we have structural issues here. You know, I, I, I sort of joke about my parents grew up in Greece. They went to medical school in Greece. They came to the U S as international students. I was born here and they lived the American dream. It was not in America, in the sense that they, you know, they both, my grandfather from my dad's side was a refugee. My other grandfather, as I mentioned, was a baker. They didn't have an education. They went to free university, free medical school. They came to the U.S. at a time when even their master's degrees weren't that expensive. They were able to get an education. They lived here for 10 years and then they went back. So I was born here. I'm an interesting um, first generation since I was born in Cleveland, Ohio. And then my mom became a professor at the University of Athens, so they moved back. We were raised there. They always saw us as, you know, American citizens. We were raised in a bilingual household, even though they didn't speak perfect English because they said, you know, your future is in the U.S. But I do wonder sometimes, you know, I know that my kids can get a free education, a college education in Europe, and they can't in this country. Like, when are we going to start allowing for that dream for our kids you know, in, in public health, we're talking about the next generation living a shorter lifespan than the current. This has never happened before. Um, so if we are going to focus uh, on our kids in the future, you know, climate change, things that you care about, Jeff, um, health, uh, education, free education, these have to become priorities. Otherwise, the dreams that our parents and grandparents came and brought us here for are just not going to be realized. And I'm a bit of a downer there. I do think that there is potential and there's a lot going on um, at the local level, uh, but we need more leadership on those dreams. The, the notion of, of social mobility is one that, that I contemplate often, right? The ability to, to move up in class and whether we're 
providing that opportunity as, as best we can. And I, I think that you're right in all the areas that you've identified. We're not currently realizing that, or at least America is not leading um, that ability for one to maximize their own potential. I will say that the movement to America and my grandparents especially were the catalyst and, and they did live out the American dream. And so I, I do think, and, and maybe identifying it as something that only could have happened in America might, might be inaccurate, but they left impoverished areas. Um, my, my grandparents on my mom's side from Portugal and on my dad's side were, were born here, uh, but newly Italian and both, you know, grew up in poverty, started their family in poverty, and were that uh, force that really pushed our family. I mean, I hope they're very proud of the life that I've been able to live um, because of the hard work that they put in um, and, and long hours that they put in and focus on education uh, that they you know, instilled in their, uh, in their children, sending both my parents to be first-gen you know, college students and really taking them from you know very very impoverished areas taking massive risks and leaving a, a, a life of comfort for for their kids so I, I do think that however that story happens right however we allow you know we have really really i think people just are very very hard working they want to you know self-actualize make themselves the best that they can be pass on the best uh life that they can uh for the next generation and can we be making, are we making sure that we're giving everyone uh, the opportunity to, to do so? Uh, affordability of education, I think, was huge in that. You know, both my parents had a much more affordable uh, education than, than I did, and that's only going the wrong direction. I will tell you that one of the things that I think about every single day as a uh, legislator is the obligation to increase opportunities for people. And I think you know, my notion of what government is all about is uh, to help people do the things that they can't do for themselves. Um, and this notion of equality of opportunity is always there. And I often think about what the American dream really is. Is, uh, is it, is it uh, doing better financially than your parents? I don't think that's the measure of uh, success. I think if you lead a rich life, in terms of uh, richness of culture, richness of, uh, of education, and uh, you know, have the ability to think through a lot of things. I think that is the, the richness that I like to uh, pursue, and that, that's the opportunity I like to see for others. And I do understand that people have to make a living, and you know, that keeps the engine of uh, the economy going, and the economy is very important to our, our democracy as well. I definitely, you know, I, I see my kids doing very well in the happiness quotient. That's important to me. Will they make more money than me? Well, I, I hope they do. Uh, I'm not sure. I, you know, it's not something we discuss, not something I really care about. It's more important to me that uh, they're happy doing whatever it is that they do. And I think they've succeeded in that. And I want to just see that opportunity go, go out to others. And, uh, you know, one classic example that uh, I have been working on in the legislature is this uh, concept of college and high school and early college and, and providing that opportunity to disadvantaged folks 
around the Commonwealth of Massachusetts because I know how education transformed my life. And I think that opportunity ought to be extended uh, uh, to everyone. So pursuit of the American dream, yeah, but what is that dream and, and how do you realize it uh, is something that uh, should be thrown out there. And I, and I say, and I'll go back, these are notions that were passed to me from you know, my family life and, uh, and, and I'm and glad Jeff, it happened. Now that you're talking about education and obviously higher education is, is a key part. I, I keep on going back to the fact that we all talked about grandmothers and the grandmothers that were there to do childcare, um, especially early childcare. Like I think about the fact that my grandmother was there so my mom could work. I have to work, meaning I have to put my kids into super expensive daycares. I do think the missing link now that grandmothers aren't there because they're in the workforce is that we need to have free or highly affordable early childhood education. That zero to six, the, you know, before or zero to five, before, you know, public school kicks in is critically important for a woman's career because she's probably in her, you know, thirties to forties or twenties to forties. And if you don't have that support because you don't have a grandmother because they are in the workforce, um, you need government support. So I hope we, get equal attention to the, you know, college education and then the free or affordable early childhood because grandmothers are no longer able to play that role that they played in our lives. Um, I, you know, my mom is still working, so she can't be the grandmother who's home taking care of my kids because she is a critical part of the workforce as an epidemiologist right now, even more so. You know, I think uh, maybe uh, I thought you were going to tell me we need more grandmothers and uh, that we ought to do something <laughs> about providing more grandmothers. Not sure how we can do that, but uh, it's it's a nice thought. But, uh, you know, what's remarkable to me is one thing I see with the, this current generation is that uh, they're not giving folks like me the opportunity to be that grandfather or my wife to be that grandmother. They're having kids much later and they're having uh, far fewer. And I think that's, uh, you know, that's something that is, is not being overlooked, I, certainly, but it, you know, it's, is led if you to- want, If you want to adopt a grandchild, I have three. <clears throat> Michael has been amazing. He took- Yeah, I was going to say, I thought, there you go. See, I, I thought Michael, I was being you, interviewed for that job. You, you know? my, my husband still talks about the, you know, you basically took the kids from me when I was like campaigning and he was like, oh, this Michael guy is really good. So Michael, you are our honorary <laughs> grandfather, but we you can't have, have we can have more. <laughs> oh yeah. Oh yeah. Uh, you know, and I'm going to add one other twist to this, you know, sort of a different facet, which is that when you add the complexity of people of color, especially in my family uh, of folks who have been here for generations upon generations upon generations, but yet were never really part of the American system, therefore not part of the American dream, if you will but still part of the American fabric, it brings a different kind of dynamic. And I love your stories uh, about your immigration, your grandparents and all of those things. But there is a, uh, there's a large swath of our country though, of people like me, who the aspiration for my generation from my great grandmother, grandmother, mother, and father, was that I had a better life than them, much more closer aligned to the mainstream because we were so marginalized as a people. 
And that's a different texture and a different kind of story uh, that I'll throw out there. It's, it brings with it a different set of dynamics. Of course, in my family, going to college was one of the things that everyone, and I, and I mean aunts, uncles, cousins, everybody in my family, it was push, push, push to get someone into college. I happened to be one of the first ones in my family. And this is my mother, my father, all of their siblings, the first one in our family to get to college. My, grand, my great-grandmother had an eighth-grade education. My grandmother finished her GED the same year that I finished high school because she and I worked together. I worked with her to get her, her GED. My dad ended up doing a similar thing. He ended up getting his GED. My mother, similar, because uh, neither one of them finished high school. But it wasn't just a matter of the education. It was the matter of being able to be a part of the American dream. That is to be a really accepted part of the country, whether it was voting rights, housing, just equality and jobs. You see, we had to struggle through all of that just to get to the point of now, can we really start to live the American dream? And I think, you know, and that's actually the case for a whole nother show. Uh, and I think at some point, yeah, we're going to talk about reparations, I hope, at some point in the future. <laughs> okay. Which brings us into hey, maybe all of even those next dynamics. week. What do you think? Uh, you you know, hey, team. let's do it. <laughs> uh, uh, yeah, I, I was going to say that because I, I think that that's right. Like my, my family's story, it just wasn't afforded to uh, a whole, a whole, chunk of, of uh, the population already living in America, the ability to elect leaders that look like themselves, uh, the ability to have a high quality uh, education, and then the ability to buy a home in places that homes were not offered to uh, people of a certain color. All of that, you know, when we talk about social mobility and wealth accumulation, I mean, the, the housing alone, if you just take one piece, um, you know, a home that they bought in Franklin has probably increased in value holding for inflation fivefold, three to fivefold, something like that. That's wealthy that, that our family accumulated that wasn't afforded to, yeah, to, to, to black Americans. And I think that that's key as you, as you um, go into your, your conversation around reparations next week. Yeah. And well, Natalia, I would like to say to one other thing, and I think you're absolutely correct. The idea that you have someone in the extended family who's home taking care of uh, or helping the family to take care of the of the children is key. And that's something, too, that we have to address. And I don't think we pay enough attention to the fact that, yes, our families in this country need that kind of support from the government to help us with and recognize the role of the caregiver for children. Let me bring up two other things that we haven't discussed one is, in, when I was a young fellow, there would be great gatherings at my grandmother's place where all the cousins, the brothers and the sisters, and everyone, uh, maybe even a couple of times a year during the summer. And I think that has tremendously faded away, uh, the relationships between brothers, sisters, and cousins. And the other thing is, how do we honor uh, the mothers and the grandmothers. I can remember on Memorial Day, I grew up in Forest Hills and Walk Hill Street, all the Italian ladies 
would be walking in black, as, as Natalie has said, to the grave sites, particularly because their husbands had, had passed away. They'd, they'd be totally in black. Their families would, would be with them. They would have picnic baskets. And literally, they would be at the grave site having lunch and remembering all the people at, at, that are buried at the site. Mm-hmm. Today, even among families, I don't hear anyone ever bringing up stories about those that have passed away. We got, and, and it never, ha, ha, very seldom ever happens that someone will come up to you and say, even on Mother's Day, when I was a young usher in church, you would wear white if your mother, white carnation if your mother passed had passed yeah. away, and you wear a red one if she was still living. Yes. Today, no one ever asks you even if your mother is living or passed away. So how do we remember currently, culturally, those that have passed, and how do we stay in con- context in, in, uh, with our cousins, with our brothers and sisters? That seems to have distanced itself. That's a fascinating, Frank, because just last weekend, as a matter of fact, it's interesting you should bring that up. I gave that lesson to, uh, to, my, uh, to my kids. Uh, I lost my wife last year in May. Uh, it was after Mother's Day, and I was telling my kids last week, I said, okay, you do know that white, whether it's a white rose or a white carnation, shows that you ha- that your mother has, uh, has died, and red is that she's still alive. My kids didn't know that. This is the first that they had heard of that, uh, that particular. And I know when I was growing up, that was a given. Everybody went to church, and all of the men would either have a red or a white carnation, uh, and you would immediately know. But some of those particular mores and stuff have passed along the way, Frank. And I agree. It, you know, maybe it's time for us to. And the family gatherings, again, at you know, whether it was at holidays or in the summer, the entire extended family. And could that be that people have moved away from the extended families have scattered? Or uh, I, I don't know what the uh, what the answer is or how to address that. I'm lucky to be in a family that places a high priority on maintaining contact with cousins and and, and family. And then we meet, uh, yeah, for most of my life, it's been twice a year at least. Lately, it's gone closer to one. The pandemic was massive in that it was the first year ever that I didn't meet with all of my you know, Portuguese cousins and all of my uh, Italian cousins. Um, so that I, I think that had a very real impact on on that, and a, a lot of it is is the ability to go further away, and a lot of it is we just change how we contact each other, right? We do still do biweekly Zoom calls, and, and so I, I think that the world and how we connect with the larger families is changing. On the notion of staying in touch with you know older and, and people who have passed, I wanted to make a note around you know early education. And having you know grandparents serve that role as, as early educators, uh, one of the things you know a very real, uh, practical thing that we're looking at as a as a town council as a town leader is the ability for one to add a unit to their own home uh, that invites uh, multi generational uh, families within the same home. And I think that I was lucky that when my grandmother passed. Uh, we were able to add a unit on and invite my grandfather in. My cousins currently have taken my grandmother in after 
uh, her husband have passed. That's been a massive change on how I was able to relate uh, to the family and how connected we were able to do. And in a lot of communities, uh, the ability to add that that unit uh, is not um, afforded to a, a family by right. Um, it's a small solution, but I, I think that uh, it does help some families, you know, create multi-generational housing, which allows them to be early educators, as well as allows them to maintain uh, connection in life um, after the passing of, of one or both. Uh, grandparents. You know, another one along these lines, uh, the family meals. And, uh, you know, I recall uh, that Tuesday was the night that everyone in the family, cousins, uncles, you know, it started at four o'clock and uh, pasta and meatballs was the meal. And between, I would say, 4 p.m. and 8 p.m., there would be uh, tons of people coming in and out of the house, sitting down, eating, sharing stories, uh, just uh, being together. I, I certainly miss those days. Um, I don't see a lot of that happening as much, but certainly a great way to celebrate your family and get everybody together. Can I jump in and, and say that, you know, we've been talking about traditional family structures and it's interesting, like a lot of us did have that benefit, but there are a lot of families that don't work um, and they don't work for the kids and they don't work. Um, you know, I, I know friends who are, are gay and coming out was really hard and families rejected them and they have rebuilt that community in other ways. So I do want to be sort of hopeful in saying that it's not a one model. You know, I do long for or sitting, you know, I haven't seen my parents in two years because of the pandemic, and I do long for that. And the cousins, we're pretty spread out. Uh, you know, my cousins are all in Greece, um, so I haven't seen them since childhood, really. You know, we don't engage as much, but I've built some really close friendships. You know, my college roommate was basically my support throughout this pandemic. She doesn't have children, but she and her partner were basically the second home. You know, so I do want to say that there are benefits because there is a bit of this tribalism. You know, if we are family, we probably look alike or similar. And, you know, Michael, you know, if you can be my kids' grandfathers, there's so much to learn from that, that, you know, if they were only with their biological grandfather, they wouldn't learn. And so I do want to open up our conversation to that intimacy is what we want. We want that intimacy. And how do we recreate right. that? And how do we allow for it? And how does the government support some of those gaps that, you know, typically families fill, but we don't actually need it to be family. We just need the gap to be filled. So there's, there's a lot to talk about. And I do think next year, that intimacy, a lot of us have been having to think about who are the people we rely on, who are our closest friends, what does, you know, COVID has been so uniquely um, isolating, you know, and so uniquely eye-opening for many of us too. So I do, I do wonder what the years ahead will lie in and, and opening up for family to be a more inclusive term, I think, uh, is useful. The Jesuits have an interesting perspective. The Jesuit perspective is this. Give me a kid until they're six years old, and then we're done with them. <laughs> that speaks to the formative nature of those early years. Now, couple that with the embedded wisdom, the cumulative wisdom of years of living that come from grandparents. Mm -hmm. The challenge in any government program is to find a way to replace that in a caregiving situation. That's a tall order, but a necessary one. It truly is community-based, village-based, in some ways 
faith-based recognition that all of us have a role to play in helping to shape and change the country by helping our families. And I think you're absolutely on target, Natalia, with the redefinition of family, with the redefinition of inclusion uh, of family. Uh, for example, one of the, uh, uh, I'll embarrass Kobe by saying that one of the real heartwarming moments uh, I was associated with Franklin soccer for years and years and years was walking to that building and seeing your mom with all of the kids, <laughs> you and your other siblings constantly with, I mean, it was like, a, you know, a mother hen with all of her chicks constant. I mean, it was never a moment when I wouldn't see your mom and your dad when you didn't see the rest of you and uh, the love that sort of spewed out of that. Uh, you know, just out of that scene of walking into that building or or seeing your mom and your dad as they as they help this community. And, uh, you know, and again, I will give you and your family this compliment. I think Franklin soccer uh, really exists because your family exists uh, and especially your mom. Uh, your dad, well, you know, hey, I mean, you know, being a referee and uh, coach and that kind of stuff, he did get me into being a referee, I will say that. Uh, but, uh, but yeah, but so the acknowledgement of that in a community and saying that this is part of our fabric is something that we have to strive for in order to make a more perfect union. I think we need that kind of value structure. That was awesome. I'm, I'm, I'm glad to hear it. I appreciate the anecdote. Yeah, being in that, in that soccer office three times a week you know, annoying my mother and her patients as we just uh, tried to make the most of entertaining ourselves in a very small space while she tried to do her job. Uh, that was a, a large chunk of my childhood. Hey, I think these stories all reflect what we really need to do to make that more perfect union. And uh, Michael, I think you summed it up perfectly well. And uh, I'm so glad that uh, I got to learn a little bit more about each and every one of you today. And uh, thanks for being open and thanks for sharing. Um, fascinating. The more I hear, the more I love you guys. Well, this is uh, a journey to a more perfect union. And today we uh, heard a lot about mothers and grandmothers and how to make that journey. And uh, Pete, how should we close the program? If you have an opinion, we'd love to hear it. You can contact us at info at franklin.tv. That's info at franklin.tv. What do you think about your mom, your grandmom, how they fit into society, and how society can make things better through them? For now, this is Frank Falvey. I'm Peter J. saying so long. This is Franklin Public Radio. <laughs>